Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, there was a time back when I was in middle school that a miracle happened. Uh, I managed to get a girlfriend, which is, of course, kind of silly because having, you know, having a girlfriend in middle school is like, you know, when a dog chasing a fire truck actually catches the fire truck, you know, like, what is the dog going to do, you know, with the fire truck is, it's kind of silly. But, you know, I had a huge crush on this girl and worked up the nerve to ask her out. Uh, That was the term back then. Will you go out with me? which was also loaded with irony because it's like, where am I going to take her? I can't drive you know, or like go anywhere. Anyways, uh, but she said, yes, I was shocked and I was so excited. Uh, I was going out with a girl that I thought was so far out of my league. Uh, but after that big moment of asking her out, um, almost nothing happened. <laughs> uh, we, like, we didn't hang out hardly at all. I'd call her and we'd talk a little bit. Um, whenever we were around each other, uh, she was very, seemed very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 13-year-old Josh was even more clueless than I am now. And, you know, I didn't really know what, why was happening and what was going on. And I thought I was sad about it, but I also thought she was so cool that I didn't want to, you know, cause any problems or anything. And then one night she called me. I was floored. I was reading down in the basement and my my mom hollered down the stairs because, you know, we had a landline. We all shared one phone line and, uh, and told me, and I could not believe it. Uh, but you could probably guess why she was calling. Any guesses? Yeah, to break up. To break up with me. Yeah, that's right. It was a short phone call. Uh, it, was, it was a moment of high elation and then a very sharp fall. Fast forward a decade and a half or so, and I'm married to Camille. Praise God. And on a visit to her family in California, I take her dad's competition-level dirt bike for, the spin, for a spin. Uh, I loved motorcycles back then, but never got a lot of action on them, so I was excited. And I hop on this thing that my father-in-law used to win competitive motocross races. So it's a, an impressive machine. He said, hey, t- you know, take it easy uh, until you get the hang of it. And I was like, okay. And so I putter around for maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute, and then I just gun it. I just let her rip, wrench all the way back on the throttle, and this thing flips out from under me, and I land straight on my rear end on a gravel road, uh, shredding my pants, shredding the skin of my backside deeply, and the bike just flips end over end. And uh, I'm trying to make, keep the story short. My father-in-law looks at my wound and is like, he's a man of few words in many motorcycle accidents. Looks like hamburger. That, those were his comments. Uh, I was pretty newly married at the time. And so I was very embarrassed. And I, I tried to kind of sneak into the house and crawl up to our bedroom to you know, try to get myself together, hopefully, before Camille notices and, and, and all that. Uh, but it was pretty bad. I, I was not going to be able to hide this one or get over it quickly. And uh, Camille came in, and guess what? She, she took care of me. She moved towards me and helped clean my wound in probably the most embarrassing place it could be. Uh, 
Sorry, this is too much information for, for Sunday morning, but we're family, right? We, we say we're family. We tell stories like this. Uh, but this beautiful woman that I had just married was caring for me in a very painful and emotional and embarrassing situation. And we laugh about it now, but it was a profound experience, a profound moment of what, uh, a picture of what marriage is all about and what it's like in that kind of relationship. You know, we make in sickness and in health and stupid motorcycle accidents and in health at her wedding. And she moved towards me in my pain and shame and cared for me. I tell those two stories because I want them to serve as kind of two ways in our minds, prototypes, if you can, if you will, of how we can relate to Jesus. Uh, as we walk through our text, I want to think about how we relate to Jesus. Because sometimes I think us church people, those who would call ourselves Christians, we relate to Jesus the way I related to that middle school girlfriend. You know, maybe in a moment of bravery, you, you pray a prayer or you come forward or you, you, know, you ask Jesus out into your heart or something like that. And you establish a relationship. But from then on, it's distant and awkward and doesn't really affect your day-to-day life very much. You might call him and talk to him now and then, but you feel like he's just really not that into you. Uh, he kind of takes your call because he, he has to or, or something like that. And, but you know he's a big deal. You're not going to break up with him. You don't want to rock the boat uh, or anything like that. You, you, you're not happy, but you, you don't want to cause any problems because you, you want to have it all together so that maybe he'll like you a little bit more. The other way of relating to Jesus, the way that we see in our text, is more like the way I experienced Camille, my wife, after the motorcycle accident. It's a way of relating to Jesus that receives love in pain, in embarrassment, or even shame. It's a way of relating to Jesus that trusts the love and commitment that he himself says is there to the point where we, we let him see and touch those places in our lives and our stories and, and even our bodies that we're most ashamed of, that we most try to hide. It's a type of relationship where the times that we are most vulnerable, the most ugly or unlovable, where our mess is the most obvious, those times become the times where we feel the most love, where we experience the, the Jesus seeing us and loving us more clearly. And the idea for us today is that we see the power and love of King Jesus. We experience the power and love of King Jesus when we come to him in desperate vulnerability. If that is something you want, if you want to experience the power and love of Jesus, then desperate vulnerability, I think scripture shows us, is the name of the game. So let's dive into our text, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. 
A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So if you've been tracking with us through, through Mark, Jesus is in the middle of a crazy 48 hours, or you know, a couple day period that we've seen kind of play by play. He started on this side, the current side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jewish side, doing an epic all day marathon of preaching where we got the parable of the sower and a few others. And then he was exhausted. And so the disciples take him away uh, and they sail to the other side of the sea. And, and what happened then? What happened? A huge storm. A human storm sprang up and almost sank the boat, but he silences it with a word. And then they land, to the, land on the other side of the sea, having just survived a storm. And then what happens? There's a demonic man comes up and there's this crazy showdown with some de- a legion of demons and some pigs. And he get, he, the, the people say, leave, get away from us. So he get back in the boat and that brings us to today. So back and forth, across the water, back in the Jewish uh, side of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And our passage today is what scholars call a Markin sandwich, which I think is a funny term because this is something that scholars, if you ever want to sound smart, this is something that you can do is make a noun an adjective. So Markin is the adjective, adjective form of Mark. The, the author of our book. But then I think it's funny because they couldn't come up with a scholarly way to say sandwich. <laughs> so they just said sandwich. It was a, a Markin sandwich with this story uh, sandwiched around another story. But to Mark, these two stories are meaningfully connected and we, they, they both help us understand uh, the other one. Really fascinating parallels. So this large crowd gathers and there's a, a desperate father who's daughter uh, is on the, the brink of death. The, the phrase there in the Greek is an expression like at death's doorstep or something like that. She's imminently approaching death. Put your hands on her so that she will be healed. That's what he asked. And the crowd's alarmed and they start making their way, pressing in on Jesus, making their way to see him heal the daughter. Probably pretty hyped to witness a miracle. And in part of the crowd is a woman with chronic hemorrhaging. And Mark gives us more backstory of this woman than any other of the gospels. While the girl is about to die physically, this is part of the Mark and sandwich, the woman situation would have been a living death. It's juxtaposing the woman's situation and the girl's situation, um, saying that they're similar. To unpack this woman's situation, there's multiple levels. First, there's the actual physical ailment, which in and of itself would have left her weak and miserable. And on top of the physical suffering, she had suffered uh, abuse at the hands of uh, quote-unquote doctors of the time claiming to heal her but made it worse. And the practice of medicine at this time was little more than superstition where they're like mashing up bones to drink the liquid and all kinds of just goofy kinds of things, gross things, painful things. So the medical treatment in of itself would have been a form of suffering. And then the medical treatment left her broke. So she was financially suffering, emotionally spent. But arguably those layers of her suffering were nothing compared to the crushing 
social isolation she would have experienced as a Jewish woman with chronic bleeding. Let me just read to you a little bit. Uh, You can flip there if you want. From Leviticus 15, back in the the law, I'm going to warn you, it's kind of uncomfortable, kind of weird, Uh, but it's in the Bible, so I don't think I can, you know, honestly, as a pastor, apologize for reading the Bible and Scripture. But this is Leviticus 15, verse 25 through 27. It gives a background of what this woman would have experienced. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean until evening. I'm sure that's what you're looking for today. I hope you read some Leviticus 15 uh, for us this morning. Stay tuned for a sermon series on, uh, you know, the whole book of Leviticus. But suffice it to say, that these laws were given by God to people millennia before the word hygiene had been invented. Germs hadn't been discovered, all that stuff. So many of the laws of the Old Testament were to help create a thriving civilization, amongst other things. But from this passage, we can see that the woman in our text today probably would not have been touched for 12 years. Anyone and anything that she touched would have been unclean. Other passages say she would need to announce that. Like if she was walking through the the street, she would have to announce that she was unclean. This woman was probably cut off from her family. It had been over a decade since she felt her husband's touch, felt her child's hand on her face. Spent all her money suffering at the quackery of doctors completely and utterly alone, ashamed and in financial ruin. She's at the end of her rope. Can can anyone else here relate to this woman? Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because he thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she fell in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In her desperate vulnerability, she presses through the crowd to touch Jesus, so desperate that, that she, would, she didn't care about what happened. And the image is powerful. She, someone who hasn't been touched, who knows that she would make everyone unclean on her way to Jesus, just presses through, absolutely desperate for any kind of reprieve. And behold, the healing power of the king. She touches the fringe of his garments. And I love the expression here. She's freed from her suffering. She felt in her body, she was freed from her suffering. Yes, the the hemorrhaging stopped, uh, but also the shame, the relational desolation, the painful medical treatments, everything. Our king, Jesus Christ, has all power and authority over nature, over demonic evil, over suffering, over illness. He frees people from suffering. That's why I'm a pastor. I want to give my life 
to the helping others experience the person and presence of Jesus and the, the freedom from suffering that he can provide, the, the freedom that allows us even in our suffering to experience joy and peace. Now, this woman from her isolation and shame worked up her courage, you know, to just touch Jesus and then, you know, ideally fade back into the crowd. Just a brief connection with Jesus, enough to kind of get, get her healed and, and then disappear. This is the, the middle school girlfriend way of relating to Jesus. Like, let me just touch him a little bit. Let me just pray a prayer to get into heaven let me, and just try not to mess up too bad until then. But that's not how Jesus operates. He, he won't let her slip away into the unknown. Look at verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you, you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He calls her out of the crowd, and I love that, but Jesus kept looking around. He's looking for her. And she falls at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear. Will this holy man be mad at her, rebuke her, make a big issue by the fact that now her being unclean made the crowd and him unclean? No, Jesus not only freed the woman from her suffering, but he desired, he stopped in the middle of this life and death situation to make a connection with her, to look at her in tenderness and love. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free. <coughs> this is marriage, Jesus. This is Jesus who looks at this woman in her shame, in her suffering, in her humiliation, and moves towards her slows down enough to care for her and speak to her affectionately. Daughter, your faith has healed you. She's already freed from her suffering, but Jesus, more than just her physical suffering and all the implications, knows that what she ultimately needs is connection, deep connection to see the God of the universe looking at her in love. Jesus was an aloof dispensing supernatural benefits without a relationship. Look what happens next, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and, and the disciples 
were with him, and they went in where the child was. In the eyes of most of us, if we were to put ourselves in this story, especially if you're a trained medical professional, you would, you would think Jesus is making a mistake in terms of prioritization of medical concerns. If you're an ER nurse or doctor, if you have two patients and one has a chronic illness that's been around for over a decade and you have someone who's on death's doorstep, who do you treat first? The urgent life and death case. But Jesus is staggeringly unhurried. And now the daughter is dead. No need to bother the teacher. It's heartbreaking to put yourself in Jairus' shoes. What was he thinking while Jesus is like stopping and interacting with the woman? But the king overhears and Jairus doesn't even have to respond. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Just believe. Fascinating stuff going on in this Markin sandwich around these ideas of faith and belief. Jesus is rebuked and mocked again. First, the disciples with the woman, like, wait, you're worried about who's touching you? The crowds are crushing you right now. Uh, What's going on? Why would you ask that? And then the professional wailers, the people making the commotion, which according to the tradition at the time, they're people, professional wailers that you would pay to come and wail and and grieve, help you grieve the death of a family member. They're laughing at Jesus for saying that she's sleeping. But he goes into the room with the child there, and I imagine it dark and stuffy, a dead 12-year-old girl in the middle of it, a devastated mother and father, and three wide-eyed, I would guess, overwhelmed disciples. And he sits on the edge of the bed, takes this girl's hand, and says an expression that would have been something close to sweetheart. Go ahead and get up. Precious little girl, arise. And she did. King Jesus can raise people from the dead. King Jesus can raise people from the dead. Hallelujah. And I just love that he instructs them to feed her. There's some funny stuff I love about resurrection and food. You know, like when Jesus... Uh, raises from the dead. He asks the disciples for something to eat. And then, you know, they find him on the beach getting fish ready for breakfast and all that stuff. Anyways, uh, I just think it's funny. Maybe dying makes you hungry or whatever, but uh, I love that resurrected life involves food. (laughs) In both stories in the Mark and Sandwich, Jesus is clearly concerned about bodies, about bodily health, about care, And he has power over chronic illness, and he has power over death. He is the king. Now, to close, I want to draw three points from this passage. And I kind of worked it so they all start with the letter D. Uh, It's a little bit of a stretch, but whatever. It's daughter, desperation, and do stuff. So let's start with daughter. Jesus is healing and resurrecting. He's displaying his power over illness, over death, in powerful ways, in in such tender, tender ways. Both of these women, he calls fatherly terms of endearment. He looks at the the woman bleeding, says, daughter. He looks at the, the, the girl who has died and says, Talitha, sweet one, little girl. I just want us to, to soak 
in the beautiful intimacy, the tenderness in which Jesus exercises his power as the king of the universe. He's attuned, relationally and emotionally present to the woman and the girl. He's compassionate and affectionate. He shares terms of endearment, calling both of these women things that shows that he cares and he touches them. He holds their hand. His power over death and disease is not for show. It's not, he's distant and aloof. It flows from the heart of love. It flows from his very nature because God is love. God is the source of all love. There's no love apart from God. We know that Jesus can heal from a distance. We have a story of that where he just looks at a guy and says, go, you're son is healed. Uh, But more often than not, he chooses to touch people, touch their eyes, stick his fingers in their ears, make mud with his spit. He enters into their lives and their stories to look at them, to speak with them, to connect with them. Now, this daughter idea applies to both men and women, of course, uh, but I think it's worth meditating on Jesus's interaction with two females in this passage. Women and women's rights were pretty awful state back at this point in the history in the first century. And we see Jesus's heart. In, in Jesus, we see God's heart uh, towards women, the care for women, even women who were d- deeply rejected, deeply isolated on the margins, socially unclean, or even just still a kid. The point I'm trying to make here with this daughter is that we are looking at King Jesus in this series on the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at his power and authority over all these different aspects. And I want us to see the unbelievable tenderness that this power and authority is wrapped up in as it, as it interacts with humans, with real human stories, as it can interact with your real story. And the invitation is to hear you to to see Jesus seeking you out, seeing you in your most helpless and vulnerable space, the the, the part of your story you most want to hide, the part of your story that would keep you in the crowd wanting just a little tiny taste of Jesus. And to hear Jesus looking at you, no matter how old you are, speaking a fatherly term of endearment. My precious boy, my beautiful girl, my daughter, my son. Is your heart strong enough to behold God looking at you with a gaze of absolute delight and tenderness? The second D is desperation. Desperation is all over this passage. The woman's state was hopeless. The girl was at death's doorstep and then a crossed over the threshold and was desperately dead. Jairus and the woman end up at Jesus's feet on the ground in desperation. And you see this throughout all the gospels. The people who experience Jesus's love and power are the people who are desperate, uh, who end up on their knees in front of the king. And on the flip side, there's a very distinct contrast from the people who are not desperate. I think of the rich young ruler 
the Pharisees and scribes, uh, Pilate, Herod, the people who murdered Jesus, were decidedly not desperate, and they do not experience Jesus's love and power. This is a tough word for us here in 21st century United States. So much of our culture, our strategies are meant to keep us away from the desperation. Even if we are desperate, we, uh, maybe that is true. We have, you know, we have cancer, or we have some crushing desperate pain or whatever. We have enough cheap entertainment and comfort food and things to keep us busy to avoid ever really coming home to our pain and coming before Jesus in that desperation. We can avoid our shame and our fear with countless different ways of entertaining and amusing ourselves. We have enough money, we have access to healthcare and endless streaming media. We can avoid Jesus' feet. And so I think that could be why a lot of us don't experience Jesus as this incredible source of love and power. The passage that came to mind as I was chewing on the desperation in this passage was from the parable of uh, the sower um, from Mark 4 that we looked at a little while ago. It says, Still others, like seed thrown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. That choking out, the like being too full, the, the, it, it keeps us from surrender because there's an emptying to surrender of giving, a sense of giving up that's required in order to, to make space to be filled up by Jesus's love and power. And there's, there could be lots of things in our lives that, that would fill us up and keep, uh, keep our, our hearts uh, crowded and cluttered and not able to receive Jesus's power and love. What is it for you? What is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind? So your phone, your job, money, a relationship. And that brings us to the last D, which is do stuff. Now, this is the D where I had to, you know, do a little pastoral creative license to come up with another D. <laughs> uh, but the point I want to make about, uh, about this do stuff uh, idea is this. Faith and belief that would open us up to receive Jesus's power and love uh, requires us to do stuff. The faith and belief that would open us up to receive Jesus's power and love it requires us to act, to do stuff. Faith has to come down out of the, the clouds. It has to get off the coffee mugs and the churchy cliches that it can get stuck in. And, and, and faith has to get to work. Now, I'm not talking about earning anything from Jesus. I'm not saying we can force his hand, that there's like some kind of faith dance or checklist that we could do that then we'll put Jesus in our debt or anything like that. But I am saying that like Jairus and the woman, we can do stuff to put ourselves in the place where we can receive from Jesus what only Jesus can do. The verse that bothered me the most about this passage this week as I chewed on it was verse 34. When Jesus says to the woman, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Wait, Jesus, is that theologically correct? 
Are you, are you sure? Are you reading the text that you're writing accurately? Because, I mean, the text says power went out from him when she touched his garment. It was the power coming out from Jesus that healed her. But he explains it in connection to her faith. Why is that? And how do we, how do we get faith like that? Like, how, how do I get faith that would heal me, that would set me free from my suffering? Well, as I thought about it, the best analogy I could come up with is a sail on a sailboat. What makes the boat go? The wind, the sail. You know, it, what, what is it? It, it? was the power of the wind that moves the boat. Without the wind, the sailboat goes nowhere. But in another sense, it is the sail that moves the boat. The wind moves the sail that moves the boat. And so in the, the activity of sailing, in the stuff you do, if you're a sailor, raising the sail and all that stuff is how you're able to receive the power of the wind. And what I'm saying is that there is an active passivity in this doing stuff. The active passivity, I realize somewhat of an oxymoron, but the, it, the more I'm a, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I talk to people and hear about their walk with God, the more this concept of active passivity is something that I come back to. It's just like a sailor, there's activity and hoisting the sail and doing all that stuff. But then once it's up, you're passive. Like there's this activity to put yourself in a place to actively wait for the wind of God to blow in your life. At the core of the situation is a passivity, a desperation, a complete dependency, just like a sailor is completely dependent on the wind. James 2 would say, faith without works is dead. A boat without a sail is dead in the water. If you're here today and you look at our passage, you see Jesus tenderly bringing freedom from suffering, bringing resurrection life to a dark, stuffy room, and you want it, you need it. You feel like you're living, you're in a living death you feel exhausted and weary, then hear me say it is an active faith that would do stuff that's going to open you up to the Holy Spirit to experience the love and power and freedom of Jesus. To say it another way, faith is seen in our habits. We can say we have faith in Jesus, but what we actually have faith in shows up in our habits. And to some degree, this is not spiritualizing it, but like we, we do stuff based on what we have faith in. Like you, you probably go or before you retired, went to work in faith that that paycheck was going to come. We might eat certain food because we have faith that we will feel better and get healthier if we do. Or we have faith that the comfort food will give us the comfort that we desire. And that same thing applies to our relationship with Jesus. If we believe that Jesus is the king with all power in love and, and, and that healing and freedom from suffering are found in intimacy with him, that he's there to call us out of the crowd and look at us tenderly, fatherly, and tender fatherly love, then we can do stuff, concrete things that would actually like show up on our calendars uh, that would 
metaphorically raise the sails on the boats of our lives so that we can catch the wind. I'm really working this sailing metaphor, I'm sorry. The stuff we can do uh, in, in faith in Jesus is not secret or, or cutting edge. It's the stuff you've probably heard about all your life if you've been in church. It's the stuff that Jesus' followers have done for thousands of years. Uh, but it, we're doing it from a place of desperation. We're doing things not to check a list or to make ourselves feel better, but to empty ourselves so that we can receive from Jesus. So it's the it's things like starting out our time with Jesus uh, by reading a passage of the gospel, journaling out our prayers to him, journaling out to Jesus what we think about the passage, what he said, what questions we have, what, what our anxieties are, what our fixations are, what our anxieties are. Uh, I Testimony time, I've been freaking out this week about AI. I've been reading too much news. And so I had to do some like major journaling and prayer to Jesus about AI. You know, it's just like getting it out on paper because that's where my heart is. I could feel guilty that I'm obsessing about AI or whatever, or I could just bring it to Jesus and be like, I don't know what to do about this fear. Or it could be stuff like fasting, which I've talked about a lot because it's a huge one for me. Like, I believe theologically that Jesus offers more comfort than a, than a pizza or an Indian buffet, but I can put myself in a place physically by not eating for a period of time and saying, Jesus, you satisfy me. You be my comfort. And we could do that with a, a lot of different things. Going for walks and considering the birds of the air is something Jesus said. There's all these things we can do to put ourselves in the place of to receive Jesus's love and power. But it's doing ancient spiritual disciplines that are helpful to empty ourselves and receive. If you want Jesus, then you follow him and come to him in concrete, practical ways. Come to him uh, in practical ways with your bleeding, desperate, death-filled experience, with your shame, that deep sense that something deeply is wrong, that you're not okay, and see what Jesus will do when he looks on you. Jesus is not a middle school girlfriend. He's not aloof and awkward. He's not just that into you, putting up with you. No, because Jesus says, uh, it says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is What? He's the bridegroom of the church, his bride. Like Jesus came to me in my embarrassing injury in Jesus' death on the cross, his blood has been poured out into a new covenant that the Bible says marriage shows us what, is, what it's like. His blood made a new covenant where he committed himself to us in death in order to enter in as your Savior as your king. And on the cross, when Jesus was at, at his most vulnerable, desperate state, when he was naked, he conquered everything in his resurrection. We can come to Jesus in our shame, in our vulnerability, in our naked desperation, because he went there first and he conquered it all for us. And he now stands as the risen king of all and says to you, daughter, Dear son, arise and be with me. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. 
You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.